0: Serial Killing a Podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Alyssa Carroll. This is an independent production, no network, no contracts, and I need your support. Please subscribe, follow on my socials linked below, or go to my Patreon to show your support. Thank you so much. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode and who get early access to each podcast. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the Tuskegee experiment. So without further ado, let's dive right in. So right off the bat, big disclaimer, right? This whole situation deals with some uncomfortable racial issues. There are some strict rules that we have all, at least in polite society, agreed to when it comes to race. Certain things that we who were not born into the Black community, will not say. Out of respect for our fellow man, we just don't. We know certain words are hateful, harmful, disrespectful. I am a science-minded person, and I know that we are all one. But it's unfortunate that some just aren't capable of really absorbing that. So with that said, there may be times during this podcast where I will have to say a word or something that is uncomfortable for me and I want it known that I mean zero disrespect. Okay, here we go. Now let's get into a little bit of history, if you will. The Tuskegee Normal School for Colored Teachers, as it was called, was created after an agreement was made during the 1880 elections in Macon County, Alabama, between a former Confederate colonel, W.F. Foster, who was a candidate for re election to the Alabama Senate, and a local black leader, Lewis Adams. For some perspective, 1880 wasn't even 20 years after the Civil War ended. Lewis Adams was approached by W.F. Foster for his help in securing the black vote. Foster offered that. If Adams could persuade the black constituents to vote for Foster, then Foster, if elected, would push the state of Alabama to establish a school for black people in the county. You see, the majority of Macon County's population was black, so black constituents had political power. Adams, despite lacking a formal education, could actually read and write and speak a few languages, He was a man of many talents and well-respected in the community, so he told Foster that he wanted an educational institution for his people. Colonel Foster carried out his promise and, with the assistance of colleagues in the House of Representatives, Arthur L. Brooks, the legislation was passed for the establishment of a, quote, Negro Normal School in Tuskegee, end quote. Pardon. So the school became part of the expansion of higher education for black people in the former Confederate states or the South following the American Civil War, with many schools founded by the Northern American Missionary Association. So funds became available for the teacher's salaries, but not enough for any land or buildings, etc., So a man by the name of George W. Campbell got involved and sent word to the Hampton Institute in Virginia looking for a teacher. None other than Dr. Booker T. Washington himself was recommended, and he became instrumental in making Lewis Adams' dream happen. Mr. Washington was an American educator, author, and orator who had also been born a slave but was freed after the Civil War. Between 1890 and 1915, Booker was the primary leader in the African American community and of the contemporary black elite. So in 1881, he was named as the first leader of the new Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. He was only 25 years old. In fact, He was principal of the school from July 1881 until his death in 1915. The initial location and space for the building, the school was provided by Butler Chapel AME Zion Church, not far from the present site. And Dr. Washington was said to have taught in a rundown church and a shanty, which for those that might not know what a shanty is, it's just kind of like a very crude little shack. And not long after the founding, however, the campus was moved to, quote, a 100-acre abandoned plantation, which became the nucleus of the present site. Dr. Washington had bought the 100 acres as the granddaughter of the original owner had later stated. Dr. Washington was a highly skilled organizer and fundraiser. He was on the council to American presidents. He was a strong advocate for black business and instrumental in the development of educational institutions throughout the South. He kept his lifelong devotion to his institution and to his home, which was the South. Dr. Washington is buried on the campus of Tuskegee University near the University Chapel, And then he and his wife raised enough funds to build a large school building. So according to Tuskegee.edu, under Dr. Washington's leadership, the Tuskegee School rose to national prominence. During his tenure, institutional independence was gained in 1892 again through legislation, when Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute was granted authority to act independent of the state of Alabama. The administration hospital was created on land donated by the Institute. The Tuskegee VA Hospital, opened in 1923, was the first and only staffed by black professionals. Dr. Moton was succeeded in 1935 by Dr. Frederick D. Patterson, Dr. Patterson oversaw the establishment of the School of Veterinary Medicine at Tuskegee. Today, nearly 75% of Black veterinarians in America are Tuskegee graduates. And side note, I did not know that. I think that's really freaking cool. So Dr. Patterson also brought the Tuskegee Airmen Flight Training Program to the Institute. The all-black squadrons of Tuskegee Airmen were highly decorated World War II combat veterans and forerunners of the modern-day civil rights movement. Dr. Patterson is also credited with founding the United Negro College Fund, which to date has raised more than $1 billion for student aid. Dr. Luther H. Foster became president of Tuskegee Institute in 1953. So I have to say that I really enjoyed learning about this really rich history, but it was during this time, after the turn of the century, that it was decided by the United States Public Health Service that syphilis needed to be really studied. Originally created to protect the health of sailors and immigrants in the late 1700s, the USPHS, which is the United States Public Health Service, get used to that acronym, I use it a lot, commissioned the Corps' role in healthcare delivery, research, regulation, and disaster relief, and it became critical over time. Only they conducted one of the more unethical research programs in United States history. So let's learn a little bit about syphilis because not everyone really knows, okay? So according to the CDC, syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection, or I always called it sexually transmitted disease, that can cause serious health problems without treatment. Infection develops in stages. So there's the primary stage, the secondary stage, the latent stage, and then the tertiary stage. And each stage can have different signs and symptoms. So you can get syphilis by direct contact with a syphilis sore during vaginal, anal, or oral sex. Syphilis can spread from a mother with syphilis to her unborn baby. You cannot get syphilis through casual contact with objects. Now, during the first or primary stage of syphilis, you may notice a single sore or multiple sores. The sore is the location where syphilis entered your body. These sores usually occur in, on, or around the penis, vagina, anus, rectum, and lips, or in the mouth. I didn't know that. During the secondary stage, you may have skin rashes and or sores in your mouth, vagina, or anus. This stage usually starts with a rash on one or more areas of your body. The rash can show up when your primary sore is healing or several weeks after the sore has healed. The rash can be on your on like the palms of your hands or like the bottoms of your feet and look rough, red or reddish brown. The rash usually won't itch and it is sometimes so faint that you won't even notice it. Other symptoms may include fever, swollen lymph glands, sore throat, patchy hair loss, headaches, weight loss, muscle aches, and fatigue, feeling very tired. The symptoms from this stage will go away whether or not you receive treatment. Without the right treatment, though, your infection will move to the latent and then possibly the tertiary stages of syphilis. So the latent stage of syphilis is just what it sounds like. This is the period when where there are no visible signs or symptoms, Without treatment, you can continue to have syphilis in your body for years. Now, as far as the tertiary stage, most people with untreated syphilis do not develop tertiary syphilis. However, when it does happen, it can affect many different organ systems. These include the heart and blood vessels and the brain and nervous system. Tertiary syphilis is very serious and would occur 10 to even 30 years after your infection began. In tertiary syphilis, the disease damages your internal organs and can result in death. A healthcare provider can usually diagnose tertiary syphilis with the help of multiple tests. Sounds horrible to me. In 1932, according to the CDC, the USPHL, Public Health Service, working with the Tuskegee Institute, began a study to record the natural history and progression of syphilis. It was originally called the, quote, Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, end quote, now referred to as the USPHS Untreated Syphilis Study at Tuskegee, which makes me feel like they're just kind of smoothing it over, you know, I don't like that. But the study initially involved 600 black men, 399 with syphilis, and 201 who did not have the disease. The idea was to study the full progression of the disease. Most of the sharecroppers who participated had never even had formal medical care before this. Yes, I'm serious. They told the sharecroppers that they were chosen to be treated for, quote, bad blood. What's bad blood? Well, That was a broad term that could describe a few different things, such as toxicity in the body, system deficiencies, feeling sluggish or fatigued, issues of the liver or colon, genetic predisposition, jaundice, hepatitis, malaria, and you got it, syphilis. But you know, you guys get the idea, right? It basically means that there's something wrong with them and they're going to receive free treatment plus free meals on the day that they were going to be seen by the medical staff. They were going to get burial insurance, which for their particular society was a super important thing. They had their own traditions and things going on. So that was a big deal. They were going to get all the things. It was really hard to pass up. The problem with this is that in order to track the full progression of syphilis, researchers couldn't and did not provide effective care. If the study was to literally observe and record the entire process of humans having that disease, there could be no intervention. But don't you worry, my children, because, you know, the public health service gave these men a sense of peace by giving them or injecting them with placebos, such as aspirin and mineral supplements. I know. And as these observations went on for years, they watched as some of the men died, went blind or insane, or experienced other very severe health problems due to their untreated syphilis. And to add insult to injury, penicillin actually became the recommended treatment for syphilis in 1947, some 15 years into this study, and yet none was given to these men. According to the History Channel... In the mid 1960s, over 20 years into this study, guys, there was this public health service venereal disease investigator and social worker. He was over in San Francisco, named Peter Buxton. Peter's a superhero. Peter was hired by the PHS in 1965 to interview patients with venereal diseases, and it was during his interviews and documentation that he learned about the Tuskegee experiment. He was quite alarmed, as you can imagine, and he brought his concerns to his superiors, stating how, you know, unbelievably unethical the experiment was. In response, the PHS officials formed a committee to review the study but ultimately opted to continue it, if you can even believe that, with the goal of tracking the participants until they had all died. Until they had all died. Peter later said, quote, I didn't want to believe it. This was the public health service. We didn't do things like that, end quote. So Peter filed another objection in November of 1968, seven months after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., using this very intense and sad, frankly, situation to point out the literal, political volatility of this study, and yet again his concerns were ruled irrelevant. The study would simply continue. And as some of the men in this study began to die, some of the wives died, and some of the children became inadvertently infected, autopsies were then performed on these people and the project data would then be analyzed. So another PHS investigator, Dr. Oliver Wenger, or Wenger, wrote to another doctor saying, quote, As I see it, we have no further interest in these patients until they die, end quote. The Surgeon General, Dr. Cumming, stressed this step in a letter to the director of Andrew Hospital. He said, quote, Since clinical observations are not considered final in the medical world, it is our desire to continue observation on the cases selected for the recent study and, if possible, to bring a percentage of these cases to autopsy so that pathological confirmation may be made of the disease process." End quote. Oh, and side note, by the way, I forgot to put this in my notes, but, you know, because of some of the societal um, norms and beliefs and wishes of the people they could not get the burial insurance to bury their loved one that died unless they agreed to the autopsy, which went against their whole belief situation. It's absolutely horrific. So the Public Health Service investigators feared the enrollees would quit if they knew they would be autopsied. Dr. Wenger wrote to the other doctor, quote, if the colored population become aware that accepting free hospital care means a postmortem, every... Darky will leave Macon County, end quote. Gross. But Peter was having none of that, so he became the whistleblower. He leaked the story to a friend of his who was a reporter, who then passed it on to another reporter by the name of Gene Heller of the Associated Press. From an article published by the Associated Press, quote, Gene Heller was toiling away on the floor of the Miami Beach Convention Center, when an Associated Press colleague from the opposite end of the country walked into her workspace behind the event stage and handed her a thin manila envelope. Quote, I'm not an investigative reporter, Edith Lederer told the 29-year-old Heller as competitors typed away beyond the thick gray hangings separating news outlets covering the 1972 Democratic National Convention quote, but I think there might be something here. Inside were documents telling a tale that, even today, staggers the imagination. For four decades, the U.S. government had denied hundreds of poor black men treatment for syphilis so researchers could study its ravages on the human body, end quote. Jean was, of course, horrified and broke the story in July 1972, and it was first published by the Washington Star, but soon became front-page news in the New York Times. It caused such an outrage that Senator Edward Kennedy—yes, the Kennedy uh, family—called congressional hearings at which Peter and officials from the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare testified— In November 1972, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs officially declared the end of the Tuskegee study. It was finally shut down. From 1947, guys, until 1972, there had been an actual cure that would have saved these men and others from this horrible disease, and they were not even told that there was one. I cannot even wrap my mind around that. For 25 years, there had been a full-on cure that could have completely stopped the suffering and untimely deaths of these people, including children, and it was withheld purposely. Their precious lives were just not as important as that fucking data. The numbers are as follows. By the time the experiment was ended, 28 of the men had died from syphilis, 100 more had passed away from directly related complications. At least 40 wives had been diagnosed with it, and the disease had been passed to 19 children at birth. According to the History Channel, in 1973, Congress held hearings on the Tuskegee experiments, and the following year, the study's surviving participants along with their heirs of those who died, received a $10 million out-of-court settlement. Sounds a little like hush money. Additionally, new guidelines were issued to protect human subjects in U.S. government-funded research projects. Then fast forward to 1997, President Bill Clinton issued an apology stating, quote, The United States government did something that was wrong deeply, profoundly, morally wrong. It is not only in remembering that shameful past that we can make amends and repair our nation, but it is in remembering that past that we can build a better present and a better future. End quote. Clinton then announced plans for the establishment of Tuskegee University's National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare. Oh, and in case you were wondering, the final study participant passed away in 2004. But this was the only experiment like this, right? Wrong. Tuskegee wasn't actually the first unethical syphilis study. In 2010, then-President Barack Obama and other federal officials apologized for another U.S.-sponsored experiment conducted decades earlier in Guatemala. Also from the History Channel, in that study, from 1946 to 1948. So keep in mind that two years of that, there was a cure. Nearly 700 men and women, prisoners, soldiers, and mental patients, were intentionally, as in on purpose, infected with syphilis. Hundreds more people were exposed to other sexually transmitted diseases as part of this study as well, FYI, and that was without their knowledge or consent. The purpose of the study was to determine whether penicillin could prevent, not just cure, syphilis infection. Some of those who became infected never received medical treatment. The results of the study, which took place with the cooperation of the Guatemalan government officials, okay, were never published. The American public health researcher in charge of the project, Dr. John Cutler, went on to become a lead researcher in the Tuskegee experiments. Again, apologies were made. So here is a word everyone will need to know about. Ready? Eugenics. The definition is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century or in the 1900s, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. And someday, I will do a podcast on these ideas behind eugenics and how many of our world governments have openly used these ideas, all but for now. According to the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, quote, in the early decades of the 20th century, eugenics was a worldwide force and judged to represent cutting-edge biology research. PHS study leaders were vocal advocates of eugenic measures. Dr. Taliaferro clark earned his PHS stripes by undertaking eugenics-motivated projects on rural school children. Yes, you heard me right. Dr. Clark's data would later be used by the state of Indiana to select individuals for sterilization. Because of its influence on the future of, quote, the race, venereal disease was considered, quote, directly antagonistic to the eugenic ideal, end quote. Recognizing its threat to the family, several states enacted eugenic marriage laws, making venereal disease a bar to matrimony. So when you're watching old movies and people are getting married, they wanted to know if you were related and they wanted to know if you had any venereal disease. So among the many disgusting issues with this situation is the lack of actual informed consent. So I have a lot of international listeners. Love you guys, by the way. But most of us in the United States are keenly aware of this term because We have to sign a form nearly every time we seek medical treatment that states we have been informed of what's about to happen to us and we consent to the treatment. These men that participated in this study were given no such information. They were given half-truths and flat-out lies in exchange for their consent to participate in this study or really this experiment. So overall, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment is a significant violation of research ethics as well. The experiment lacked scientific merit, failed to respect the autonomy of the participants, caused needless harm, violated the principle of non-maleficence, and treated the participants unfairly. But in the pictures, if you Google image the Tuskegee experiments, you see these researchers and medical people all smiles and looking like they're besties with these men that they are injecting with nothing that's going to help them. Thank you very much. So, okay, but surely the people that took part in this were held accountable, at least, right? Faced some kind of consequences. Nope. Not even one person was prosecuted for the deaths and injuries the experiment caused. The USPHS justified the unethical experiment as necessary to advance medical procedures and therapies for the public good. One doctor in particular blamed, guys, you're going to die. He blamed the victims for not requesting penicillin as treatment. These people were mostly unaware that that was even what was wrong with them in the first place. None of the study scientists wrote articles reflecting on its moral lessons. Quote, no apologies were tendered. No one admitted any wrongdoing. End quote. Another stated that the participants had served their race very well. I cannot. I cannot. The use of black men as test subjects was rationalized because they were stereotyped, as sexually promiscuous, intellectually inferior, and unable to manage their economy and health care. Disgusting. There was a rumor stating that the men in the Tuskegee experiment were specifically injected with syphilis, but I do want to reiterate the fact that they were not. The ones in Tuskegee were not infected purposefully. They already had the disease. This, of course, doesn't make it any better. The lasting effects of this mistreatment under the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee are believed to have significantly damaged the trust of the Black community toward public health efforts in the United States. Many did not trust the health system after this, and really, why would they? The aftershocks of this study and other human experiments in the United States led to the establishment of the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research and the National Research Act. The latter requires the establishment of Institutional Review Boards, or IRBs, at institutions receiving federal support, such as grants, cooperative agreements, or contracts. Foreign consent procedures can be substituted, which offer similar protections and must be submitted to the Federal Register unless a statute or executive order requires otherwise. And I am not a government expert per se, but that still sounds a little shady. I don't know, to me it does. Now, before I got into this story, I knew a little bit about this study. Now that I have the overall picture, I'm honestly embarrassed that my country would go through with this. I'm a little embarrassed. Secondhand embarrassment for my own country. But with that said, I'm also very glad that I learned about it. Because no matter how much people or the governments and of the world and so on are trying to rewrite history, it is very important that we do not lose sight of these things that happened. Because they happened. They happened. Okay? It's It's bad. So anyway... I would love to know what you guys think about this. If you want me to cover eugenics, I can do that. If you want me to cover more human experiments, well, I can do that too. You guys just leave me comments below um, in whatever app that you use to listen to me, which I appreciate you listening. You can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can come join us on the Facebook fan page that was created. It's just serial killing a podcast fan page. I'm super active on Instagram and Facebook trying to figure out how to shorten these things to make little TikTok videos. So if any of you techie kind of people that are well-versed in this stuff, give me some advice on how to do that. But outside of that, thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed me people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time and then uh, in the early 80s they came up with this differentiation called serial killing